Hi guys, welcome to the Advanced Refrigeration Training Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Compass, along with my partner, Brett Wetzel. Today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries, the leaders in oil management and presser vessels for the commercial refrigeration industry. Whether you're involved with designing a system or tasked with servicing one, Westermeyer Industries has been helping meet the needs of customers like you for the past 20 years. They offer a broad catalog of stock system components with an in-house team of engineers to assist with custom solutions as well. From oil separators and heat exchangers to system monitoring devices, Westermeyer Industries are a total system specialist with industry expertise, engineering know-how, and the manufacturing muscle to help you tackle problems and deliver solutions. That's Floyd. Floyd! Welcome to Thunderdome, bitch. You got an organ going there. No wonder the sound has so much body. compressors and go over like a brief sequence of what we look for and what we try to do each time we get a compressor oil failure. So I'll start it off and basically with compressor oil failures, I usually start them off the same way and I'm looking to see first things first, I'm looking at the oil level in the compressor. Don't go jamming the oil reset and as soon as you get there, because if that thing's full of liquid or oil all the way to the top, you could potentially end up blowing up the compressor and or the head gasket. I've had this happen before. I had an apprentice that jam in the reset on me, and it was a 360-degree spray all around a room of oil. That sounds fun. Oh, it was terrible. And uh, it was a dirty room, and uh, then it was just a good diesel mechanic at the end of the day. So that's one big thing I pay attention to before I do that. If it is full to the top, I will usually valve it off and bleed it down if it's full to the top. If it's three quarters, half, or empty, then I'm not too worried about it. Then I'm going to go on with checking a few other things before I reset the compressor. But I'm not just jamming the oil reset. I mean, that's a quick way to blow a head gasket. I mean, if there's liquid or oil in there, you're not going to be able to compress it. It's going to go somewhere, and it's usually going to go outside of the compressor. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you're starting out an oil failure on a compressor is just check the oil level before you reset it. And then next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to you know, visually check over the compressor, and I'm going to check over the electrical side. Make sure I don't have a trip breaker. Make sure contactors are welded. Make sure something in there isn't actually causing the oil failure, burnt up contactor, all that stuff. I'm going to go through that real quick. And then then after that, and I know that there's no liquid inside the compressor, and there's it's not completely filled with the top of the oil, then I will reset the compressor. And then I will watch the operation for a little bit before I start checking anything else. But I usually check the electrical first and the level first because you don't want to restart a compressor that's grounded. You don't want to restart a compressor that's full of the top of liquid or oil because you're going to have a really bad day. Do you want to say, do you want to take five minutes to explain why, why the electrical is, is so important to check? Um, you know, what, what actually causes an oil failure with having something wrong with the, the contactor? So, okay, so if you say you, you, you're in a single-phase situation and you're single-phase in the compressor and it's not running and it's going off, hopefully, on internal overload and it's 
you know, protecting the compressor from burning up the windings in the motor from the single phase situation or low voltage situation. So it is, you know, protecting the compressor that way. And then it's going to stop the compressor from running. Well, when that compressor stops running, that timing circuit on your oil safety that's breaking, you know, M and L is still going and expecting to see an oil pressure differential. When it doesn't see the oil pressure differential, then it's going to open up and it's going to uh, break your contacts, break your contacts, the, uh, the contactor for the compressor. So that's why the electrical portion is, of it is so super critical. I mean, you could have a, a compressor that's single phasing randomly and going off on overload if it has an internal overload device, like a, like a Copeland 3D has an internal uh, overload, three-phase overload. So if it has a messed up contactor and you're getting a voltage drop or something like that through it, you could very easily go off on internal overload, like a Ford Copeland 4D or some of the larger Carlisles, they have an external overload, meaning a module, like it, it's, it's monitoring sensors in the compressor. Now that compressor is doing its overloads through that external safety device. So those should break power to your contactor and your oil safety. So it shouldn't be as big of an issue, but that's why contactors, if you have pitted contactors, you might as well just change them. Nothing bad comes from changing a contactor. It's like an oil filter. I mean, you want to make sure that contactor is clean and you're giving it full voltage all the time, or else you could potentially be overheating the motor windings and shutting down the compressor, causing nuisance oil failures. Okay. Uh, one other question. I had a debate about this with somebody. Uh, we had a, a compressor. Uh, I'm not sure what ended up being the end result. Uh, we had fixed the issue that we saw anyway because it just it was bad anyway. Um, we had a uh, Centronic three. If anyone's uh, familiar with the Centronic three or the Centronic uh, one and two, you know basically those do not have a specific input. So I mean you can hook up two hundred eight to the that part of the terminals to supply the power for the controller. You can also hook up the the one twenty one fifteen to it as well. So we had a Centronic three. Um, that said, our voltage would actually um, would drop down about 12 or 14 volts whenever the compressor would actually come on. So whatever voltage you were running, you know, if you're running, you know, like I said, 12 to 14 volts lower. Now, be it a Centronic, it was a Centronic 3, it's, you know, it doesn't matter what voltage you go there as long as you have anywhere from 110 to 240. Now, what are your thoughts? Do you think it would actually affect the control circuit at that point, or no? I mean, I I would think maybe on a Centronic three, probably not on a one or two. Maybe it would affect it more, but I, I would think the Centronic three would probably handle it a little better. But I mean, it's weird to have that drop on there. But yeah, it should. I mean, that inrush drop, you shouldn't really have it like that. But I mean, I would think the Centronic 3 with that voltage like that would be able to handle it. It'd be a little bit more robust. Yeah, I, I would think it'd be a little bit more robust and wouldn't be as sensitive to like the voltage drop. So it ended up being we had um, a voltage drop through the uh, wire nuts that was ran in the, uh, in the conduit. Wow. So that's one big thing I'll mention. Like I absolutely despise wire nuts anywhere on the rack, anywhere where it's a critical piece of equipment that is not main power. I refuse to use wire nuts. I only use crypt, uh, crypt nuts. Okay. I, 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 well, I think wire nuts look terrible anyway. Well, this was a single system, and the electrician put him in, so his fault. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's because he's an electrician. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean that 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 is a big thing to check. So you you want to make sure you have the correct power. 
and checking the load side of the contactor under a load too, making sure that you actually don't have a voltage drop through your contacts on your contactor is another thing you want to check and make sure it's not pitted out. You want to pull a contactor apart, make sure it's actually not pitted out. If you can't pull it apart, then you want to check your, your voltage drop through there. If I see anything like one to, uh, above a volt drop through a contactor through each from like L1 to L1, yeah. I would consider that bad, correct? Yeah, my, my boss had us uh, check um, during a PM, during the compressor running, he has to uh, check uh, milliamps. You know, it's basically, you know, you check check for uh, milliamps in, in, in series with the circuit, right? So basically if you're dropping any kind of voltage across your contactor, it would it would actually come across as milliamps, you know, from terminal to terminal. Yeah, I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, any voltage drop through there is going to be negatively affecting the compressor. So after you've gone through and checked that and it's electrically sound, it's not grounded, breaker's not tripped, it's not full of oil. So now there's two two options. Either your compressor's flat out of oil, it's got nothing in there, or it's got a little bit of oil in there. So it's gonna you're going to go two different ways. If you're flat out of oil, you need to figure out why you're not getting oil in the compressor, whether you're out of oil in the reservoir, you're out of oil in the separator, um, oil's not feeding into the compressor. So that could be a couple of reasons. Either you're out of oil, you've lost oil pressure in a reservoir like we talked about, meaning um, you may not be feeding enough oil in the reservoir to make up and or your OCV might have failed and you're not keeping that reservoir, you know, 20, 30 pounds above your suction pressure. So you need to make sure that oil reservoir or that oil feed line pressure is at whatever the rack design spec is above the suction pressure. That way you can feed that oil pressure through that oil pot into that compressor. So you need to make sure that oil line is pressurized and you have enough oil in the reservoir or separator, depending on what kind of system it is, to actually feed and push oil into that compressor. So you want to really check and make sure that that oil line is good to go. It's at the right pressure. It's got oil. And if it's still not pushing in the compressor, the last thing I want to see guys do is crank it on floats. I mean, it seems like guys start messing with oil floats a lot of times and it ends up being negatively, it ends up negatively affecting the rack because you get all these floats set wrong. But you need to make sure that your somehow your crankcase pressure isn't higher than your oil line pressure. Your crankcase pressure should be exactly what the suction pressure is. If it's higher, say if you've got a compressor bleeding through, meaning like you're pushing discharge gas in your crankcase, you're not going to push oil into the compressor because now your now your oil line pressure and your crankcase pressure are going to either going to be equalized or somehow your uh, your crankcase pressure is going to be higher from the discharge gas bleeding into it. You got anything to add to that part, Brett? No. When did you want to start bringing up into uh, issues that can, you know, one, uh, one compressor issues that can be ending up causing multiple compressors? I'm talk about that now since you were talking about blow-by. Yeah, we'll talk about that now since we're talking about blow-by. I'll let you take it. All right. So, just because you have an oil failure doesn't mean necessarily you have uh, an oil, you know, the oil issue starting with that particular compressor. Um, we brief, uh, briefly discussed this on the last podcast. Um, just want to make sure because this is one thing uh, that is grossly overlooked, especially when you have an oil equalization line. Once again, the oil equalization line is there to make sure if that one compressor is filling up with too much oil uh, because that's the predominantly run pump. You know, we can end up being able to distribute the rest of that oil um, out to the other compressors you know, in case that one compressor does fill up. On coupling compressors, uh, it does not matter how high the one compressor is versus the other. Um, car allows, uh, it does. So make sure that you're, um, you know, if you have uh, three compressors of similar height on the one side and three compressors on the similar height 
on the other side, just those three compressors on each side should share the oil. Um, if you have one sharing, it's a, you know, smaller height, um, you know, and you had, and then for some other reason it's linked up in, whether it be, you know, let's just say you had a remodel and they decided to upsize the compressor, downsize the compressor, you know, making sure that, okay, they did have the oil equalization line there and then they cut it out. Make sure that they actually did cut it out for a good valid reason. Because like I said, one uh, if you have one compressor blowing by, that's going to end up causing crankcase pressure to end up going into the um, oil line that's actually being shared throughout the crankcases of that one compressor and potentially causing the crankcase pressure to be elevated and then, you know, potentially causing, you know, all three of those compressors, at least, you know, at least uh, two of them to actually go off on oil failure. Uh, we had talked about also, you know, looking in the sight glass on the oil level control, the oil pot. If you see any kind of fogginess at the very, very top, um, you know, chances are you probably have some sort of uh, oily discharge mixture, you know, in, in the top of there. And if the system does have an equalization line, there's a high probability it could be blown into the other ones as well. Um, we talked about, uh, you know, power failures, or I'm sorry, power issues actually causing oil failures. I was out on a call the other night. Um, uh, rack was a medium temp rack. Um, so there's no head cooling fan. Uh, that's one thing I will say when you are working on a low temp rack and you do have head cooling fans uh, and the breaker is tripped, check it. Check the head cooling fan. Chances <laughs> are extremely high that, you know, that one... Uh, that one head cooling fan, you know, probably, in fact, did actually cause your oil failure. A 50-watt head cooling fan, a 460-volt head cooling fan, sounds like a hand grenade when it explodes. Oh, my God. I had, I had a uh, guy, uh, he was he was checking out the, the head cooling fans because we had two that kept going out. They kept tripping the breaker. Now, it can trip the compressor breaker, but... Uh, probably about 75, 25 or more long, long lines uh, going to short out the main breaker instead of the actual, uh, instead of actual the compressor failure, uh, the compressor breaker. So I had him, uh, I shut off the compressor, shut off the control circuit, um, had him investigate the wiring. Um, it's a lot, it's crazy how much that, you know, the head cooling fans, you know, get overlooked as far as the wiring. Um I can go to just about any rack and you'll see that if it was not investigated thoroughly, um, you'll see that piece of uh, flex line uh, separate from the bra uh, bracket that's actually holding the head going fan. And then basically the uh, little lock nut that's on that piece of uh, that piece of seal tight will actually start vibrating off. Uh, once it gets a hold of some bare wire, it doesn't take much before you have a 460 to 460 direct short. And then boom. So I had him actually checking, checking out everything, shaking all the wires around, making sure he, you know, didn't have any issues like that. He would, I gave a stick in my van to, you know, just kind of beat the flex with a little <laughs> bit that way. But you know, when you, when you can't can't find it short. <laughs> we even megged it. We even, I honest to God, I'm like, you know, it's not going off, you know, and this is like the the third or fourth time it went off. You know, we even megged it and. He uh, he was shaking the wire around while all the power was dead, and I'm like, you know what? Let's let's just start it back up. He he backed up probably about a foot. I was like, are you ready? He's like, yeah, I'm ready. Turned it on, and you are right. It sounded like a damn uh, hand grenade went off in the damn motor room, and and I'm pretty sure he went back to the back to the truck to change his pants. I uh, you know he scared the ever living crap out of him. So, you know, that, you know, any kind of electrical short could potentially, you know, cause an oil failure. Because think about it, right? If that compressor is not rotating, you lost the three phase, whether it be a fuse or whatever, um, that compressor is not making oil pressure. It's not making oil pressure. Then eventually, once it starts the timing out circuit, after that, a minute 20, it, in fact, will actually end up opening up. Um, you're going to have... Um, Another thing that could potentially cause multiple oil failures, even though it's it's you know segregated to one one particular compressor, is uh, overheating. Now we talked about blow by um, you know overpressurizing the uh, crankcase, and then potentially causing the rest of the compressors to not have that that good differential in order to get that oil flow into the compressor. 
But what we didn't talk about is that one compressor blown by so bad that it actually increases the temperature of not only the suction that you're on, but it's blown by so much discharged gas into the main header suction, where basically it's then causing the other two compressors to have an elevated uh, suction. Um, you were talking about the motor protectors uh, prior. Um, Copeland has uh, three sensors, um, thermistors that are in, embedded in the actual windings of the motor. And basically the way it works is it has those uh, thermistors overheat. The resistance ends up going down, um, has, starts going down. It's going to end up, like I said, changing the uh, resistance of the, of the thermistors that are in there. And at one point it's going to end up opening up the windings. Um, your compressor crankcase, um, on average with a full load, shouldn't exceed about 95 degrees. If you're exceeding 95 degree actual crankcase, uh, you know, basically the body, the body of the compressor, um, you're going to potentially cause that, that one, that, that compressor to, to, you know, overheat, which in turn will actually open up the, uh, the motor protector. Uh, Bitzer employs a similar control, um, just like the, uh, Copeland does, uh, except for this one only has two thermistors in there. Carlisle's doing the same thing now. Are they really? On the new compressor. Yeah, and the new 060s. And, like, they uh, they actually got rid of those, you know, those this style overloads they had. You know, they used to have the two relays, mm -hmm. overload relays. Those are – you can't order those anymore. So what I saw is that they're going with – there's an assembly that you get uh, – Yep. I have I I have it sitting on on a back of the shop. I have a Brett's shelf of crap where it's basically, hey, this might be a good training thing, so they'll just throw it on a big big shelf, and I'll finally go through it. But uh, basically, there uh, someone gave me one to look at, but it employs two two current sensing relays and a motor protector as well. But I don't know what they're you know where that thermistor is actually embedded into, right? Is the, I mean, on a Bitzer and on a Copeland, you have, uh, you know, the thermistors that are actually embedded in the windings already the, on the compressor. So, yeah, they're using the current sensing relays. Hmm. I mean, I've only done one of them, but it sucks because you have to change the whole compressor electrical box yeah. because the way it's set up. But they're here nor there, but like, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an important thing is to make sure that protector is not tripping. And one thing to like really watch out for. So say if you do have a uh, compressor belly, it's overheating, obviously blow by is going to be your number one cause mm -hmm. of that. So you want to check it and make sure, you know, all your compressors aren't blown by. And if you do have one blown by, you don't valve them off one by one. So you, you figure out which one it is or whichever bell is going to be the hottest is going to be the one blown by. But another thing to keep an eye on, which I see this quite a bit, is if you get a compressor using more oil than the others, like it's 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 an oil pump or it's got more wear on it, it's probably got a little bit of crankcase bleed by. But if you grab, especially with a high pressure oil system, if you grab that that oil feed inlet line and it's hot, like smoking hot, like it's constantly getting uh, oil made mm -hmm. up to it, it's got a lot of flow through it. You'll 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 actually increase the belly, the compressor belly temps a lot and that's the easy way to spot a compressor is pumping oil if, it, if it's making it up just as fast as it's pumping out at a rack that uh was was doing that with multiple compressors on the rack and we ended up um you know we ended up putting in uh we changed out one or two compressors the first week and, and then we you know, just kept changing out more compressors every week until we had all of them changed out and um, that was the first time I had someone actually use the Copeland mobile app to, to see what the discharge, the anticipated, uh, discharge pressure should be. Um, cause if anyone's ever used that app, um, not only can it actually do the diagnostic to see if it's pulling excessive amperage, um, but it also will basically tell you what the discharge temperature, uh, you know, uh, should be, um, this particular compressor was off by about five degrees, but we weren't taking into account the fact that all the rest of the compressors still on the rack were pumpers. So they were, you know, utilizing so much more damn oil that it was elevating the oil temperature, um, actually going into all the compressors. So that was the only reason why, why the Copa mobile app was, was off. But, uh, you know, I, I, 
I had size one up the other day just to, just to see, you know, just to show for an example, you know, what I was trying to explain to him. And I mean, it was, it was right on. It, it wasn't. It's spot oh, yeah, on sure. within like a couple of degrees. Yeah. I mean, you, you enter your suction temp, liquid, liquid temp, your, uh, satur- or your saturation temps, <laughs> and it'll spit out spot on like pretty much what your discharge temp should be six inches off the compressor. Roughly, I mean, it's it's pretty spot on, and that's something to check. I mean, if you have high, if you're over what your discharge temp should be, I mean, you 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 have a you have a compressor problem. I mean, you need to make sure that you're not pumping a bunch of oil, and obviously Brett said making it up, but at the same time, if you have may have some issues, like you had that massive copper plating problem, and it was a massive acid issue. So that's one thing to keep into account. Let's go over uh, checking, like, so after you get it, after you get it running, it's back running. So the next thing you need to do, you want to kind of watch over the operation a little bit. You want to watch the oil level, make sure it's not rapidly dropping, make sure that it's not foaming real bad. I mean, just because it's foaming does not mean it's flood back. It could be oil just, you know, barely metering through the, uh, through the float needle. I mean, that can cause foaming uh, on rapids on startup. You, you're going to have some foaming because you're dropping the pressure of the crankcase. So any refrigerant, whether it's vapor or liquid, that's sitting in that crankcase is going to rapidly boil out. So that's going to cause foaming, especially on startup. So that is not a thing I really worry about. If it's flooding back and it's, you know, violently foaming, that's another thing. But you want to make sure your sight glass is one third to one half roughly. Carlisle's, you don't want to really want to run them over a third. Copeland's, I usually try not to run them over a half. I mean, no more than that, you just put more oil in the rack where it doesn't need to be. So try to keep your oil levels kind of constant. You, you know, feel, feel around the compressor. Make sure your oil feed line's not constantly feeding in there. And then I'm going to check my oil pressure. So to check net oil pressure, it's going to be your oil pump discharge of the oil pump minus your crankcase pressure now you want to use crankcase pressure for two reasons because that's how you that that's what the control is calculating and two if your crankcase is pressurized and you were on the suction pressure say your crankcase is pressurized slightly like 10 12 pounds now instead of having 41 pounds oil pressure now you have 30 pounds oil pressure because that control is taking your crankcase pressure and checking that, not your suction pressure. And say you have a rack, it's, I mean, it's running away, five pumps zinging away. You could potentially have a, a higher pressure on one crankcase than another if it's blowing by and the other compressors are making up for it. So that's why you want to use your crankcase pressure. Obviously, not every single compressor on a rack has a crankcase tap. So, I mean, if it's the first time it's tripped and I don't have a crankcase tap, yeah, I'm going to check it on the suction. I'm just going to check it a little bit. If that compressor's tripped like two or three more times, I'm going to pump, when I pump that compressor down and pull the screen, I'm going to put add a tap in for the crankcase just to verify it. Because I already have it down, I'm going to, I'm going to put a tap on the crankcase. So that, that way you can check your crankcase pressure. Um, now, as you're checking your oil pressure, you want to watch it. I mean, you want to watch it run for a little bit, maybe like 20 minutes, half hour. Because I've seen compressors, as they warm up, the wear starts to show a little more, and they start losing net oil pressure. So you want to make sure your net oil pressure, a, cold, a good running Copeland should be 50 pounds, you know, 45 to 50 pounds. As they start dropping down to 30, that's when you get, you know, you start having an issue. You see, I, below 40 for me on a Copeland, I want to I, I want to pull that compressor apart and see if the oil sump screen's, you know, plugged up. A 4D, a 3D, and a 2D, any Copeland with a positive displacement oil pump has a screen in it. So on the front of the compressor, you got your oil screen. So that's what you're, you're going to need to pump out the oil on the compressor. You're, you're used, I use the oil pump on the actual compressor itself for two reasons. I am going to pump out the oil with it, and I'm going to let it go till it's going to start tripping on oil so I can time out the oil safety to make sure that the oil safety is actually tripping properly. Because... When the light goes red and it's calling for it to, you know, be off on oil, it's when I start losing oil pressure. I want to, I want to time that thing. 
and I want to watch it. If it trips in like 10 seconds, 15 seconds, then I know I got to ban oil safety. At the same time, I can time it out and make sure it's good. Now I pumped all the oil out of the compressor. I don't drain it. I use the compressor to drain the oil. So once the, once the oil's out of the compressor, then I can uh, pull the sump screen. Or you get yourself a, uh, they call it a pig funnel, form a funnel. It's uh, like a lead funnel with a rubber over the top of it. You can basically form it around the compressor and you can drain, uh, drain the compressor oil out. Or you could do this little trick that I do, but you got to be quick. And you could potentially get an oil bath if you're not careful. So I, I, I will put the compressor in a vacuum with a, with a vacuum pump on the suction. And I will either take the bolts out or on a 40 or the 60, it's an inch and three eighths uh, socket you need. I'll bust that nut loose and I will put pressure of my hand against it on the back. And I have a hook, like a, a dental hook. And real quick, I'll, I'll pull the cap off. I'll reach in there and I'll take the dental hook and I'll jam it in there and grab the, grab the screen out and I'll shove the, the, uh, plug back in there that, that it'll actually keep the oil inside the compressor because now the the it's like a like a like a straw when you suck on the one side then you stop the suction on the back side is keeping that fluid from coming out of the compressor so if you're fast enough you could actually pull it without making a huge mess at all like even a drop of oil and then you pull out that screen and you want to make sure to see what it looks like. If it's real, real dirty, a lot of metal shavings, you may have a compressor oil issue or an oil filter is probably plugged. If you see a lot of metal in there, I'm probably going to change the oil filter just to see what that looks like. Because if you got metal in the oil, you, you, you have a compressor starting to fail. I mean, it could be not that one. It could be a different one. And then you want to make sure that uh, that thing's cleaned up, put back, and then, you want to watch it fill back up with oil on the float and then then check your oil pressure again to see what it what it's up to. I mean, if it's like 30 pounds, I mean, to me, that compressor is probably junk. I mean, I, I, I've replaced a bunch of oil, oil pumps, Brett, but it seems like those compressors make it like six months, year, and they're, they're usually dead again. What's your thoughts no, I, on that? I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think I've probably changed out two two oil pumps in my whole career it was almost three but i was able to salvage it um i wanted to before we go on i just wanted to clear up two misconceptions one i don't i can't count how many times people see ice on a suction line or see it on the end bell and they said it's flood back it's not flood back unless the numbers show it to be true okay just about every single compressor requires a minimum superheat of 20 degrees. Okay. If you do not have 20 degrees or more, you could potentially cause, cause that to actually have uh, an oil failure. Um, we want to keep that suction line cold. We want to keep that compressor happy. Um, we do that by making sure we have the 20 degrees of superheat or more. Now there is a top end limit. Um, ideally, I like to see about 35 degrees of superheat. Um, ideally, um, my reasons for it, if, if we're already running 20 degrees and we end up having a, uh, a icing up issue on an evaporator, staying out an evaporator, you know, that's potentially that superheat's going to go down. Well, if we're already running 20 degrees, you know, we could run as low as 10 five degrees and then we definitely end up flooding back basically that 35 degrees gives you a nice buffer uh to make sure you don't actually end up getting liquid under you know under some type of component failure uh then once the ice hits the oil pump it's it's yeah, you'll, you'll feel it you'll feel it too. You'll, yeah you'll, and you'll feel it too because i mean you know we gotta remember liquid refrigerant uh has it boils off um you know has a change of state it gets stupid cold it gets really really cold so if you feel that oil pump on that particular uh, compressor um, on one header and, you know, 
it's it's staying warm the whole time. There's no liquid to be boiled off. Remember, that's like a I believe it's a lobe lobe uh, lobe pump. Um, it basically, is, yeah. it's you know it's cre- you know it is creating a little bit of friction when it is pumping away. So any kind of friction with any kind of liquid refrigerant, it's it's going to end up getting that cold. The other misconception is that oil pressure switch that's on a Centronic, that's on a Johns Control uh, 345 or 545 or a uh, uh, Cure One uh, Delta P2. Those are not transducers. They're not. So they're not actually giving you an analog value back to the controller. That switch is a differential switch. That's all it is. It's just digital. It's a digital. Yeah, it's either on or off. That's why you know on a, on a uh, on a Centronic, right? It's either red or green. It doesn't, it's not giving you an analog value telling what the oil oil pressure is. It's basically you know seeing if that switch is either open or shut. Um, I just got a phone call the other week. Um, guy replaced. Uh, they've had multiple oil failures on this system. They uh, replaced the Centronic and the uh, and the uh, differential switch. And he said that it's still oil failing. And I had, you know, asked them to make sure that they, uh, you know. Didn't change it. He forgot the oil rate. He did. Yep. You, you only do that once or twice and uh, you, you realize that. One thing to, uh, to keep, keep in mind with that is if you're doing a refrigerant retrofit, we, I had this recently where the contractor did not change the O-rings on the tips of the Centronics. And uh, like two weeks later, we started having random oil trips and guys go out there. Oil pressure's good. Oil pressure's good. Well, all the O-rings had swelled and were uh, bleeding past and causing nuisance oil trips because the, uh, during the refrigerant change out, all the uh, rubber seals weren't changed. Well, they'd missed those and it was causing nuisance oil trips. So that's something to keep in mind. That you you need to check is uh, especially the gas changeover is if they actually change those O rings on there. Also, if you are going to actually clean the uh, oil differential switches that are that are on your oil valve, um, and you're going to spray them with some sort of uh, degreaser, pull the O ring off. I don't know if anyone's ever seen what uh, that degreaser can do to uh, to rubber, but if you spray it on any kind of clear plastic like the genius I am. Um, you know, I ended up spraying it on, uh, gauges when I was, I, I think I was doing this maybe about a year and I was like, oh my God, oil all over my gauges. So I ended up spraying some sort of degreaser on the gauge set and then they turned real foggy really quick. Well, it does the same thing with the, uh, with the O-rings and basically will you will wear them. So if you are going to clean the sensor with some sort of degreaser, pull the little O-ring off before you actually spray it. Cause it also could potentially damage the O-ring, which could potentially give you you know, oil failures in the, in, the, in the near future. Yeah, anytime you pump a compressor down, you're pulling a sunscreen on it because you have oil pressure. At the same time, make sure you pull that, you pull the, uh, the, the Centronic sensor, if it's a bits or same thing, whatever sensor they're using, if it's a pen one, you want to pull that thing apart of the Delta P. You want to pull that thing out of there and you want to clean that thing too because it's got a screen on there and if the sunscreen's dirty, that could be dirty also. And you want to make sure you hit two birds with one stone and you want to make sure that's clean. And then at the same time, if you have a sporlum float, you want to make sure that you're, uh, you've, you've pulled the, uh, float, the inlet screen on the float off on the flare off. So you can clean that too. Generally don't see those too dirty. The only time I ever see those dirty is when people use, uh, uh, bypass oil filters, which are the devil and should not exist. <laughs> Because, I mean, if you're bypass oil filter, it's, once it goes into bypass, it's going to allow the material to, you know, eventually collect in the, uh, the float screen. So you want to make sure that's clean. But you want to make sure that, that those are clean. If, if I have a compressor that's going off on oil multiple times, even if the oil pressure is somewhat good, and it's, it's going off multiple times, we've been there more than once, I'm pulling that compressor apart, and I'm going to clean that sunscreen. Because otherwise, you're just going to end up uh, chasing your tails. I've seen it where a compressor runs for a half an hour and loses that net oil pressure. That's why I like using transistors and like watching it on my iPad where I can just graph that pressure difference 
and just watch it for a little bit and go, go about doing other things and just watch that oil pressure. And sometimes after they heat up, they start trending down. I mean, that's when you need to check all that stuff and make sure that uh, it's all good. So that's a, a brief oil, like, of like how to check the uh, oil, which make the actual oil pressure. Now, the other thing I want to go over real quick is uh, checking oil, the, the trips on the, the oil controls. So I know a lot of guys I see what they'll do is they'll just turn a breaker off and try to time it out. Well, I had some guy the other day call me and, uh, oh, well, none, none of these oil controls in this rack trip, none of them at all. Well, I go, I asked him, I go, are they breaking the common? Well, so th this one had a current sensing relay where they were breaking the common. And that's why none of his oil controls would trip when he was testing them because the common's broken on all of them. Via, I've seen him do it on auxiliary side contactors. So unless that contactor's pulling in, the compressor's amping out, it's not going to energize the common on the oil control and allow the heater circuit to be energized or de-energized. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you're testing oil controls. If you, you can't shut the breaker off sometimes, sometimes you actually need to pump the, the oil out of the compressor to test the oil control. You, you have to physically make it do it. It just can't see it, not pump, or you have to jump out that current sensing relay. Yeah. Um, one other thing that would to be mindful when you are like, you know, a lot of guys out there, you know, do remodels out there. And they, you know, sometimes they have to convert a rack from, you know, let's just say four of uh, something, you know, something that was mineral and then, then requires uh, polyester or, you know, basically another gas, you know, maybe it was 404 and now they switch it to, you know, 448 or 449. Well, the difference in between the switching it from 404 to 448 or 449 has a higher compression ratio. So, you know, one of the added devices that has to be added is a uh, demand cooling module. Um, all your controls that have an L and an M need to be wired into L first, and then your common needs to be hooked up to M. If not, I've seen on multiple occasions where they've wired it up backwards. Demand cooling module will trip, compressor will uh, will fault out. It'll go. It'll be tied into the same alarm set of contacts that it's using for the oil fill. And then after uh, that is tripped, the because it's still getting power, because it's basically back feeding power through the alarm set of contacts, um, it'll actually uh, keep, even though it, it just failed on demand cooling, after a minute 20, it'll back feed the other voltage through and then cause the compressor to continue to run. So you'll actually have two separate controls that are tripped, but because of the way they were wired, it's back feeding voltage and then just lets that thing just chum along until... Either A, someone notices, or uh, B, you have a couple bad compressors. Yep, seen that before. Another thing you want to keep in mind, your oil control should always be the last thing in the safety circuit. So nothing should be after the oil control. The oil control should always be the last thing. So that way you don't have you know, a CPC or relay or Danfoss relay shutting off and cycling the compressor and you know dropping out the... Uh, signals to the compressor and cause an oil failure. So I had a control company come in and a bunch of single units and they took over control of these and these guys really didn't have much idea what they were doing and they were cycling the compressor contactors with a relay and uh, they were tripping on oil every single day when we got there. They were tripped on oil well because they were cycling the compressor relays and uh, they were they tied them in after the oil controls. So the oil controls were still live, calling for the, everything was calling for the compressor to run while they were calling for it to be off and causing nuisance oil failures because they didn't know what they were doing. Hence, they didn't know what they were controlling. They just knew that they wanted the contactor to be on and off. So, yeah. Yeah, real bad, real bad situation. But uh, big argument on a roof, but. That, that's that's another one that you know you need to make sure that that safety that oil control is the last thing in a safety circuit. So one thing I want to talk about because we have a I know you guys have the same thing because we both have the the same major customer. Um, so scrolls and oil failures. 
and economized vapor injected scrolls. This is a huge problem. I see it all the time is you start getting some oil failures on the compressors and guys want to write up the temp right filters and all this. If I start seeing oil failures on scroll compressors on a scroll rack, first thing I'm doing is when I get to the controllers, look at the discharge temperature. If I see that discharge temperature really low, you know, like sub 100 degrees, 100 degrees maybe, uh, I'm going right to that <laughs> sub cooler because it will flood back so hard through that sub cooler that it'll it actually fill that. I know you've seen it, Brett, fill that separator full of liquid. I thought you were going to say just reset the oil, oil fill switch. Well, that's what guys do, and they, you know, they write up parts or whatnot, or write, they write up it's a bad oil flow or whatever. But it's actually flooding back through the uh, economized vapor injection line because you have a failed subcooler sensor. If it's an electronic subcooler, the subcooler is flooding back. That is a huge thing because it those scrolls will take it for a while till they don't take it anymore. They sound like a bunch of pissed off weed whackers <laughs> in a row. So they're just drinking liquid. I mean, but it pushes all the liquid out of the, out of the scroll or all the oil out of the scroll, and then eventually it trips out of the OMB. You get some nuisance trips. I mean, that that's one thing with scrolls. I I'm checking the discharge line temperature. If the discharge te- line temperature is low and it's vapor injected, it's probably flooding back to the economizer line. And sometimes, uh, to be honest with you, you know, we're, we're joking, but like that can be a real hard thing to find sometimes um, because. Usually when they flood out like that, um, the subcooler will maintain and actually be a little, you know, a little bit colder than, than typically what it, what it, what it should be. Um, you know, those, uh, brace plate heat exchangers that are doing the, uh, the subcooling, you know, typically have, a depends on where you set the superheat, but, you know, it can't have a TD as low as, uh, you know, 10 or seven. And, uh, what. Shoot. I've seen, I just, I'm starting one up right now. It's size oh. three. But it's but it's also dependent on on what superheat you're running. So uh, one of the biggest things, and and I've diagnosed, uh, in no lie, probably at least twenty of these in the in the past six months, where you know these uh, whether it be a compound compressor, uh, whether it be a uh, vapor inje- vapor injection line, um, you know coming from from the scrolls or from the subcooler to the scrolls. Um, that's why it's really important, especially when you have an electronic expansion valve. You do not want that liquid line solenoid cycling off and on. We want to maintain that liquid temperature as constant as possible because if we're going lower than what it's supposed to be, there's always going to be some sort of safety written in the program that if it does get too cold, it's basically going to shut down your uh, shut down your liquid line solenoid. Well, here's the problem: if the if the controller is not linked up somehow, where it even remotely is aware that the solenoid is shutting off. Uh, what will happen is, you know, just like any uh, expansion valve, whether it be electronic or mechanical, what happens when you shut down the liquid feed to it? Um, it's going to assume now, because your suction pressure is then going to drop, your discharge, or your suction line temperature is going to increase, that, that simulates a high superheat. So when you have an electronic expansion valve, that thing is thinking, man, I get some high superheat, I need to start opening up the valve. Well, it might be two, three, four minutes before... You know, the temperature is getting up where now it has to call back on to, to bring that liquid feedback on. Well, in the interim, your valves probably went from 16 or 20 percent all the way up to 100 percent. So as soon as you open up that um, uh, that liquid line solenoid, that valve is already at 100 percent. So now you literally go from zero to holy crap flooding back within seconds and it'll go away again. And sometimes, you know, you because you're so focused on your oil fail, you're looking for oil levels, you're looking for something else, you know, in the subcooler as far as oil failures, especially when it's being used for some sort of economized gas for those compressors, is so overlooked, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean that that's one that's probably one of the first things that I I'll go to because I've been burned so many times. On startup, I like to put a uh, temp sensor on that line. Just to, you know, so I could monitor it and, you know, if it, if it is dropping too low, I could, you know, program in an alarm to try to help guys out for that because it is a real pro- big problem 
And that is one thing that you want to, you know, keep an eye on. So that's, uh, you know, one big issue to keep on mind with scrolls is watch that discharge temp. So that way you're not, you're not causing issues with scrolls. I mean, obviously you have no oil pressure to check. I mean, just make sure you, you check your crankcase pressure, make sure you don't have a check valve failed in the compressor, you know, let it blow backwards. But with the scroll pretty much it either works or it doesn't. I mean, you could, you, you're not going to be, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you really don't have, you don't have oil pressure. You don't have all, all you got is oil feeding into it. The OMB I mean, with the scroll, like, I mean, the biggest problem is just make sure you got the, the OMB is good, making sure that it's clean, making sure that the rod is actually on the OMB. I see this quite a bit on startups. Like where I have nuisance compressors tripping, like I did today. I found that uh, the manufacturer only put the rods in two out of three compressors. So number three kept tripping randomly and the oil levels were all off. Well, the rod wasn't in there. So I was missing the, the oil rod on there. So I had to go ahead and get that ordered. But that's, that's another thing you want to make sure is that that rod is actually inside there or else it'll cause nuisance alarms. It'll, uh, it'll cause nuisance fill alarms and all other stuff because it, it sees the oil moving around in there too violently and it can't judge the oil level properly. So that's one thing you want to check in there and make sure that uh, you're, there's a screen on those OMBs. And now you got the OMCs also, which are the uh, 110 and 220 volt version of the OMB. So they'll, those are the same thing. They have a screen in there on the flare inlet connection. So you need to make sure that screen is clean and uh, good. And sometimes you have to take them apart and blow degreaser through them to make sure that they're clean. Like I'll, I'll flush them out real good. Same thing with oil floats. I mean, if you're going to pull it apart and you got it off, I mean, I fill that thing full of degreaser and I'll let it sit for like a minute or two with a bunch of degreaser in there, slosh it around, and then I'll dump it out and see what comes out. Make sure it gets real you know, nice and clean. Make sure that glass is clean so you can see it. So I just want to elaborate on one thing that you had said. Um, you you said it so quick. And just in case, you know, there's technicians out there was like, what the hell was he talking about? So um, in all of these scrolls, there is an internal discharge check valve. What that's there for is to hold up, hold up. Not all of them. Oh, touche. Go ahead. So, like, there's certain models where it's not there. Like, a lot of the digitals have an external okay. check valve. But like, yeah, some some you gotta watch. Some models have an internal. Some models have an external. Right. So the check valve, you know, on let's let's you know, let's say most of the models um, is there. So when the compressor shuts off. You know, you don't have discharged gas uh, blowing right into the, in, into the suction. Um, if you do have a check valve uh, go bad on a compressor, um, where basically, let's just say you have a single system, and that compressor continuously is just short cycling itself to death, because right now it's just it's blowing that, that refrigerant back into the suction whenever that thing shuts down, raises the pressure, and just get keeps that endless cycle. We had in the economizer unit on one of these cascade racks that we were working on and that's what happened it it, it shook it it uh short cycled itself to death because the discharge check valve had taken a crap um if you have a internal check valve uh go bad on that particular compressor you can install an external one um to uh you know to make sure that that doesn't happen if you are going to do that, the only recommendation I'm going to make is to make sure that you actually do have a high pressure switch in between the external check valve and the compressor. That's the only thing I'm going to say that you need to make damn sure that that high pressure switch is there because if God forbid something would happen uh, where it wouldn't open up for, you know, it's a check valve, but you know, things, you know, stranger things have happened. So if you are going to install it, make sure that that, uh, there is a high pressure safety device in between that uh, discharge check valve and your compressor. Yeah, I mean that's the that's that's a real good point. You don't want to make a pipe bomb. So I think that's uh, Brett. You got anything else to add to it? I think we did a pretty good 
you know, overview of uh, compre- checking over compressor overfills. Yeah, read the directions. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I'm saying that jokingly, but not. Um, we, you know, we if there's so many different uh, devices out there, you know, just take this podcast for for example. I mean, you know, we intended we were oh we'll be able to knock out you know oil fill uh, podcast in, in one podcast one hour recording, two hours recording, three hours recording. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to do it. Um, the reason why I'm saying that is because there's so many different devices when it comes to uh, oil failures. It, it It's very easy to overlook something. Um, the other week, um, you know, you know, you have different manufacturer of oil level controls, the oil pots, right? You have Henry, uh, you have Alco, um, you have Sporlin. You have, I believe, Henderson makes one. Um, that being said, one of the uh, one of the oil uh, level controls, even in the shipping, well, I believe it's, it's not, um, Henderson. I think it's Alco. Alco actually installs um, to make sure the ball inside the oil level control doesn't. Oh my God! <laughs> doesn't doesn't, <laughs> doesn't move around during shipping. They uh, they install a small piece of cardboard, uh, you know, just to make sure that 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 um, that ball doesn't float, or, uh, you know, bounce around during shipping and get damaged. Well, on that pretty little piece of plastic they use to actually, you know, close any everything to make sure you know nothing gets in there. There's a big bright yellow tag that says, "Make sure you remove uh, the cardboard innard." I think uh, the technician got to about the third. Uh, third oil float before he before I had happened to mention something and then had to pull everything back off and, and then at that point you know uh, you know basically you know he's trying to adjust it not understanding why hey I just put installed these oil oil level controls and uh, you know they're, they're not opening up and you know I, I will do a little ball busting you know I'll, I'll you know break someone's stones about something that make them freak out a little bit to make sure they remember something and he thought I was joking with him. He was, I was like, did you, did you remove the piece of cardboard? It's like, what piece of cardboard? I'm like, uh, the one that it says to remove on that piece of plastic right there. It picks up the piece of plastic, starts reading through it. Shit. Funny story. We actually, uh, this old abortion rack that I had at my last company that we all hated going to and the place was terrible. Like, it just, the thing was from like the seventies. Somebody rebuilt it a couple times. Well, we were having a bunch of issues over there, and I had there was guys there pulling apart oil floats. After I did a controls change out, they were pulling apart oil floats, trying to get things taken care of, trying to get all the little issues taken care of. They found four compressors that were like fifteen years old, and the cardboard was still in there. <laughs> It is not disintegrated. I've I've found um, at least three different racks um, where the cardboard was still in where the filter dryers should have been. Oh yeah, that's a bad sign. You know, you you're like, oh, why didn't the oil? Well, you know, why didn't the uh, the suction filter? You know, suction filter. Why didn't the liquid line filter change anything out? Yeah, that's why. Yeah, it's a bad time. Well, I think that's uh, gonna wrap it up for tonight, guys. Unless you got anything else that unless you got some kind of craziness oil fell that, that you had that you think maybe someone would learn from. No, no, I mean uh, I think I've pretty much gone through just about all of them. All right. Well, hey, listen, I want to thank you guys. Um, today we actually hit up to thirty-two hundred downloads. Um, I I can't thank you guys enough for supporting us and. You know, listening to um, you know, listening to us ramble on about stuff. I, I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah. Likewise, I really appreciate you guys listening, and uh, hopefully, we can keep growing this into something bigger. So, with that being said, All right, have, have a- All right men, this is it. The time has come. Remember, product pride, portion consciousness, zero hour is upon us. Let us seize the day! Yeah, yeah, Carpe D's nuts! God, I can't wait to quit this job!